Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Robert Berger, joined by hosts Lee Griffin and Scott Boris to discuss 61.107, the flight proficiency that you are going to be required to know to get a private pilot's license. We're going to be consulting the ACS. This whole regulation kind of follows uh, right along with the ACS book that the designated examiner, the person giving you your final check ride, is going to be evaluating you on. And uh, let's just jump right into it. We have uh, we start off, a person who applies for a private pilot certificate must receive and log ground and flight training from an authorized instructor on the areas of operation of this section that apply to the aircraft category and class rating sought. Uh, then you go to section B, areas of operation. We are doing one for an airplane category rating with a single engine class rating. This is not for uh, anything other than single engine airplanes. Uh, the first one off the bat is pre-flight preparation. So going to the ACS, there's the first task is pilot qualifications. How how would you guys describe this, Lee? How would you? I would just say, uh, you know, knowing your qualification with respect to the type of flight you're about to conduct. I guess okay. is the way I, I would I would kind of say that. What do you yeah. think? And, well, in there too, it says limitations, currency, um, then operating yeah. private pilot. The, the way I look. Go ahead. Scott, were you about to talk? No? No. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. The way I look at this is, is you need to think about this as though you're already a private pilot. Yes, this is your check ride, but they're trying to see, are you ready to be a private pilot? And so you kind of have to have those currency and recency of experience uh, requirements in mind that your instructor should have taught you, you know. Um, yeah, because the, the moment you the person signs you off, you you are a private pilot, so... Yeah, that designated examiner. Yeah, exactly. That, so that's that what day, they're testing you. Yeah, that day you should be in in the mode of actually being a pilot in command as exactly. a private pilot. Yep. And then uh, task B, they can uh, question you on. And this is important, too. The designated examiner isn't necessarily going to cover every single one of these during your check ride, um, but they could. Uh, they're oh, yeah, basically yeah. going to choose choose which ones and it you know, varies uh, depending on who's doing the examination. Uh, but task B for pre-flight preparation is airworthiness requirements. Uh, this is uh, applicant exhibits satisfactory knowledge, risk management, and skills associated with an airworthiness requirements, including airplane certificates. So this is basically um, that your plane is ready to fly. And the airworthiness certificate, and I assume maintenance records would be included in this? Mm, Possibly? Yeah, I don't think you have to bring them you don't have to show them you just have to understand basic maintenance of the aircraft right i mean i would say that's up to the examiner you know because some examiners you know i've seen want to bring you like a photocopy they don't expect you to to schlep the the logs with you to the check ride if you're gonna go on a two hour or three hour flight to get to them that's the whole point of having maintenance logs on the ground in a fireproof safe somewhere so they're not they're not going to burn up in the crash if there was yeah. one, you know what I mean? Yeah. But so they, I mean, so I've seen some that expect a photocopy of the last hundred hour inspection. If that's applicable to that airplane, if you don't, if you don't own the airplane, you know, so if it's a commercially, you know, a flight school's airplane, they're going to have a hundred hour inspection. And then the last annual, that, that, that is pretty common. If it's a rental airplane, they need a hundred hour. If it's privately owned, they don't. Right. Exactly. I don't yeah. think, I don't think no, we had to show anything, but, uh, do you own the, the, the airplane? Yeah, yeah. Right. We had we had private planes. We weren't doing it in rental. Right. right. Um, task C: 
for pre-flight preparation is weather information, which this is this could be an entire podcast, oh, let yeah. alone episode in and of sure. itself. Yep. Uh, but basically, you have to be a meteorologist uh, to be a pilot, uh, almost. Um, so basically, yeah, expect. I don't think there's a single examiner out there that's not going to to probe you for uh, try to find out your knowledge level for weather information because it's completely required to be a good pilot or even oh, a for sure. mediocre mediocre pilot would uh, would need to know some. Uh, pre-flight preparation. We're still in task D, cross-country flight planning. We talked about last episode, uh, 50 plus nautical miles, basically going long, longer distances, like navigating, going out. Uh, it's considered cross-country, at least 50 nautical miles for, for what we're talking about here. And uh, how to do that. You're most likely going to have to do a um, cross-country planning. Um, for more sit down with the examiner before you actually fly, uh, not necessarily, you're not going to fly a cross country yeah, with gonna, the examiner. They're I, not going to make it waste that much time flying it. Uh, when, when I did it, they, he just had me plan it out and then fly like maybe 10 minutes in the direction of the airport that we were going to. And then he said, all right, that's good. That was it. Yeah. We had, we had the same examiner. So I, I remember that there was, yeah. We started off the whole flight on like a cross country, and then once he realized your planning and everything was correct, and you'd probably make it there, yeah, based he, on what he's seeing. Once he knew we were, I was headed in the right direction and knew what I was doing, that was good enough. Yeah, yep. I mean, it all just generates talking points. You know, it's it's and and everything with the FAA is scenario based, so it makes it that they're big on the scenario based thing these days you know they want a logical progression and gets you more in the mode to be like how how do i start my pre-flight planning and then you kind of go all the way through the steps and it makes it logical for for you as the applicant and makes it a little easier for them and less work for them to really follow along is what it boils down to yeah a little bit of that um still in pre-flight preparation section of the reg uh, in the acs uh, task E is National Airspace System. Uh, so this is basically, could be entire episodes in and of itself. Uh, but there's different, depending on where you are in the sky, there's all kinds of different stuff and different laws and procedures that apply to you. Yeah, that's something and, I uh, definitely need a review on, Lee. Yeah. I'm, uh, <laughs> yeah, every, everybody does. Everybody does. I'm very rusty so, on that one. <laughs> Most yeah, people so, are. Uh, that'll be that'll be a very helpful yeah. well, episode well, for me when we do that one. <laughs> yeah. Well, in the se- the 2020 season here, I want to I want to do an episode for each uh, lettered airspace uh, before the oh. end. So we'll try to get that done. That'll no promises, but we'll try to work that in 2020 here. And then, uh, so yeah, that's task E, pre-flight preparation. Task F is performance and limitations, which this is again on your check ride. The the DE can ask you and probably will because this is so important and it's uh, doesn't involve burning av gas to to perform this is basically um, figuring out how much weight you have on the aircraft and then uh, where that weight center of gravity is located in the plane there's all sorts of calculations you'll learn from your instructor and then you're you're almost always tested on that in a private pilot uh, check ride i would imagine and also that involves how what direction the wind's blowing when you take off and land how fast it's how hard it's 
going. Certain planes can only handle a certain amount. And then you got to be able to do all those calculations to safely be a private pilot. Yeah. I mean, under, I mean, the way I'm looking at that, you know, I'm, I'm hearing everything and, in, in, uh, the way I'm looking at that is that's really those calculations there. Those are going to tell you whether you can even conduct this flight. That is the first airplane specific or airplane performance specific thing in terms of how, how much fuel you have that's going to get you killed first. Yeah. That, that right there. And I mean, if, I mean, if you don't have this pretty much spot on, I mean, your DE might just say, you. I mean, you're not even bothered getting in the airplane. You mess this up, you Absolutely. know, you're well, done. You, I mean, well, and they know, like, you look at these charts, I mean, you know, at, you know, kind of in the transport category, they call them spaghetti charts. You can't, yeah. I mean, you can't read anything. Like, if you look at these these charts and you draw this line, you're using a an average pen, uh, ballpoint pen width uh, line that you're drawing, how many feet or how many, you know, whatever degrees or pounds is the width of that line you're drawing on these charts. It's just crazy. You got to blow them up 300% for it to even be kind of accurate. And yeah, then you got to take the time, you know, to figure this out and look at your airport, how much runway do you have and what's the optical clearance requirements. That's that in, in at, at sea level. It, I mean, for the most part, it's not going to be that much of a factor. Normally, will not be a factor if you're taking out of any, taking off out of any established airport. You get out west where it's hot, that and it's and it's high elevation. That's where all those considerations are. I got a trip at the end of this month out of Eagle, yeah, out of Eagle, Colorado. There's a ton of different procedures and stuff that 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 come in it to be a factor. What's the elevation? You start there? talking about those elevations. I don't know. I haven't done my pre-flight preparation yet. You guys got all those fancy, fancy computers in the uh, corporate world, though, to help you do those calculations, though, right? Right. Yeah. Luckily, or you know, you'd have to. I'd have to be planning right now to to make that flight at the end of the month. It's just not practical. But yeah, so there's a lot of third uh, vendors that have come out and simplified that performance data at, at great cost, of course. But but yeah, as a private pilot, there's there's some stuff they can help. Um, the regulations certainly give you some latitude that, that we don't have in the in the corporate or the transport category world. But as a pri- as a private pilot in a GA type aircraft, you can get away with a lot. It doesn't always it's not always going to end up being the safest operation though. If you you know just do the bare minimum the regs uh, require. Yep, and then but we're uh, talking about check right. So yep. you know that's uh, you know you got to go to the umpteenth degree. On a check ride, check ride yep. mode. Still in uh, pre-flight preparation. Task G is operation of systems. This is basically from what I remember. It doesn't. It probably goes into this more further down. But if it has a system on the plane, you're pretty much expected to to be able to explain it and use it on your check ride. So, for example. If you're taking your check ride in a plane that doesn't have an autopilot, you're not expected to have any knowledge or won't be asked really about autopilots. But if the plane does have an autopilot, for example, you would be expected to know that autopilot like the back of your hand, inside and out, how to safely operate it, correct? Uh, yeah, the most part, you know, I'm, I'm so a lot of the stuff, if they can't really draw good questions to ask you on the ground. That's stuff they're, they're going to expect you to demonstrate in the aircraft. 
Yeah. So sometimes, you know, the autopilot, you know, is a little bit, there's, you know, there's certain systems that are a little bit more abstract to talk about. They expect to see the, the use, your ability to use the system to be, to be there. And that's where the, that's where you'll be graded is more in the airplane on, on certain things like that. Yep. And then still in pre-flight preparation, task H, they call human factors. I'll just read this one. Applicant exhibits satisfactory knowledge, risk management, and skills associated with personal health, flight psychology, mm. or physiology. Yeah. I'm, uh, safe. Aeromedical, I'm safe model. Yeah. Aeromedical and human factors as it relates to safety of flight, which that's, uh, I mean, that's everything from just being stressed to hypoxia to optical illusions, uh, everything you should learn while you're going through your rating. Uh, that a pilot deals with from like a medical standpoint, you are likely to be quizzed on at least some of that from most of the examiners, I would imagine. Oh yeah. And then pre-flight preparation task I water and seaplane characteristics, seaplane bases, maritime rules and aids to uh, marine navigation. This obviously only applies if you're doing your private pilot check ride in a seaplane um, or they're using the same ACS. I believe when you convert, over to a seaplane. So if you're doing that, then they'll obviously cover this. Uh, but that's basically when you when you're on the water, you, you're a boat. You're operating under maritime law. You in the United States, it's the United States Coast Guard navigation rules. Uh, a lot of the stuff changes uh, as soon as you touch down in the water. Uh, pre-flight procedures. Okay, so Lee and I discussed earlier uh, pre-flight preparations and pre-flight procedures preparation is you can think of before you get to the airplane of stuff you can do pre-flight procedures is more of like when you're actually with the airplane you agree with that lee yeah that i mean that's i think the, the most concise way to describe it yeah yeah and then basically task a for this now for the pre-flight procedures um is pre-flight assessment basically preparing for safe flight. Um, this involves the airplane walk around, checking your fuel, moving control surfaces around, making sure nothing's jammed, uh, stuff you, by the time you're taking this check ride, you should have done hundreds of times probably. Yeah, for sure. So that, that I, I know this wasn't something I was worried about when I was taking my private, just because you, know, you do it so many times leading up to that. Yeah, just the one thing I was, you know, like when I was instructing is it's easy, you know, you show them a couple times and see that they're kind of moving the right things and looking at the right things as they get to that spot on the airplane. You start, ah, they got it. But then, you know, if you let them just show up and tell tell them to go do a pre-flight, you don't know how quality that pre-flight is, you know, uh, if you're not, you know, there with them. So I, I, I saw that that would kind of been the what a lot of the instructors that I would, my predecessors were doing and, and had me do, it kind of made me think, and I did it for a little while too. And still, until I started thinking, man, I'm kind of putting my life in their hands a little bit. And although, yeah, yeah I yeah. didn't instruct them well, you don't know what they did my own fleet pre-flight. The instructor never really monitored what I was doing when I was pre-flighting the airplane. Just, he, well, it's a good he, time he, to bring up systems and stuff though, too. He did teach, teach us how to do a, a good oh, one yeah, though, we're starting yeah. out. Like, he definitely he, did but that, then like that was after definitely a stressed. After a while like when he showed up he just we, the pre-flight was already done we just got in the plane and flew. You know. Yeah. Well that was too a lot of that was after Solo. 
Yeah, that's true. So he's he's probably like, okay, these guys are flying these planes, doing the pre-flight by themselves when I'm not around. And it, I mean, it's their airplanes too. These aren't rentals, right? Yeah, yeah. And I guess that your guys' experience owning the aircraft, you know, that you guys were were learning in, you know, respectively. That's a little bit different than what I was doing. You know, that is good. That is good face to face time for me in more of a commercial type setting where you're, you know, commercially teaching people. That's good face time that, that is kind of free to them because they're paying yeah. hourly and, you know, you don't really want to charge them for that ground time. But if they're out doing a pre flight and you just kind of hang around with them, say, Hey, what do you think about that? And that starts helping you and help them start to define their threshold in the aeronautical decision-making, you know, process. You're really getting a good look inside their risk tolerance, what they know, what they don't know. And and that changes every day, you know, how, how much they came prepared, how much they thought about it after the last lesson, all that kind of stuff. So it's really, I thought it was very, very valuable time after I quit being lazy and went out there with them, you know, put my jacket on because it was cold outside, you know, go do it. It's valuable time with, with the uh, client in my yeah, opinion. I, I could, I could see that. That gives you, if you're taking flight lessons, a uh, difference between a, a good instructor and a bad instructor. Well, I can't say that they took anything away from it, but I thought it was valuable. <laughs> yeah. Know? Well, I mean, more time with your instructor pointing stuff out and, and observing, I, I don't think it hurt. Well, yeah, and, and it's free time for them if they have a question. Hey, I was thinking about this, or hey, what if what if I saw this, or hey, is that normally? You know, it's it's just invaluable for them because they're they're thinking, hey, we're about to go fly for an hour, and we're going to spend a lot of money to do this. Anything they can get for free, any text, phone call, any five minute conversation, you know, out in the parking lot is valuable to them, monetarily yeah. speaking. Mm-hmm. And, uh, all right, pre-flight procedure still, task B, flight deck management. Um, I don't think they were calling it a flight deck management when we were learning to fly with the back before the ACS was the PTS. Yeah, not, we, not that I know of. I like it, though. Yeah. Um, so basically, they're saying proper use of checklists, it looks like. That's uh, huge, man. Huge. Is, is, a big, is a big item uh, yeah. on this list, I see. How many more you got in the pre-flight procedures? Uh, I'm not sure. Okay. Uh, we'll just see them as they go. I'm on an iPad reading reading okay. it off here. Okay. Um, yeah, the checklist, basically everything you do in an airplane is, you have a, you have a checklist to do it almost. Um, and there's different, but yeah, but even in there, there's a bunch of different philosophies on how to run a checklist. You know, the oh, FAA, yeah. we, that we used to do, if you're doing single pilot stuff and you're on the private pilot, you're doing more of a read and do checklist. Um, you know, maybe do a flow, which I mean, is, in my opinion, is the way to do it. Back it up with the checklist in a two crew environment. That's what you're doing. You know, now the FAA is onto this, and, and it's I think the best one in my opinion. But that's the majority of what I've done is the um, verify the uh, challenge verify uh, concept. So you know, whoever is flying. So this is again in a two crew. So it's not a hundred percent, or it's not very applicable. But you get to a point, like, so you're, as a private pilot, you're to a certain milestone event. So you kind of have like a, a little bit of an anchor point event. Okay. You got in the airplane, you close the door. So now it's time for a before start checklist. So you do your flow real quick and then you, uh, go down line by line, verify that it's done. That, that is kind of the best analogy for a single pilot operation where in a multi crew, 
which again, I is not super pertinent to private pilot could be, but it's not super pertinent. You have somebody re you, you call for the, the pilot flying calls for the checklist. It's on the ground. This would be the captain, but I'm trying to simplify while still getting the point across the pilot flying calls for the checklist. Does the flow, both pilots do their flow, the pilot flying and the pilot monitoring do their flow. Then the pilot monitoring would run the checklist and then it sounds, you know, like uh, in the before start, you know, like an item would be like um, beacon. So the, the pilot monitoring would challenge beacon verify on. And then the pilot flying who should have turned the beacon on will just say on. So it'd be beacon verify on, on from the pilot flying. And yeah. that, so you can, you can draw that parallel in this what the FAA is a fan of is challenge verify type checklist. Um, it's very, very effective and allows you to get through the checklist. Like when we were learning checklist, even in, even in the smaller airplanes seemed to take forever in the monotony and blah, blah, blah. You know, why am I checking brakes and steering? I'm going to check that anyways. Why is it a specific checklist item? And that's yeah. a lot of what the FAA has gotten away from is as that I, needless stuff. As I gain more time and experience, I, I would do the checklist kind of from memory real quick, go through it and then grab the list to just run my finger down and make sure my memory wasn't deceiving me. And I actually did everything. Yeah. So yeah, that's um, a flow and run the checklist. You're doing your own, you've made your own kind of uh, hybrid challenge, verify concept in a single pilot environment. That's what you do. You got to, ver- you have to back it up with a checklist. Yep. We're I, humans. Uh, We're gonna, you got to trap the errors. My checklist for the one fifty is pretty short. There wasn't a whole lot on that. Uh, you you had it all mounted on your dash at one point, didn't you? I I just taped it up there. It was uh yeah. In that I think, that, I think see, it fell down. Now I don't know. <laughs> it was still up there when we flew last. Oh, you know what? Yeah, it is up there. I I do I remember use it sometimes. Uh, hanging by a thread though. It might. I might have just set it on the dash now since that flight, Lee. I think it did fall wow. down like last week. But you know, even. Do in there, but I do I do look that. at it before before I take off. I do read through it. Well, you can look back in all the um, case studies and everything they've done on accidents. And the biggest problem they're finding is people just simply are doing a checklist from memory. They're not even consulting the actual black and white paper in front of them. So kind of they've come to a point where it's like, okay, these checklists are so long, people aren't even doing them. So what is more harmful, having a long checklist that people don't do and do stuff from memory and then miss stuff or forget stuff or, hey, they're doing stuff that isn't applicable to the current aircraft state or, or app, yeah, I don't know what I said, but that's what I meant. Um, or do we have it maybe pared down to something more realistic that only covers safety of flight things? And that's, yeah. that's the camp I'm in. Cover the safety of flight things that are going to hurt you if you don't do them, you know, I, we have these constant brakes and nose wheel steering. We have to check out on the taxi. I'm already taxiing. If they weren't working, I'd already be in trouble. Why is an item on the checklist? It just doesn't make yeah. sense to me. So, you know, if you have all kinds of stuff on your checklist that you're going to kind of do from memory or just gloss over and not even do, what's the point of having it on there? Make short and sweet, you know, so that you do it. And that's how yours is, Scott. It's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. All right. Still in pre-flight procedures, we have a task C engine starting. Uh, that's pretty self-explanatory, but there's a process to starting um, aircraft engines. Um, and it varies by model. We won't get too in the weeds on that. Uh, task D in pre-flight procedures is taxing. 
taxiing, and uh, this is basically ru- running the airplane around, for lack of a better word, driving it around when you're on the ground is, is considered taxing. And there, there's a lot of nuance with that, but that's one of those things I personally didn't worry about for that, just because you, you gain so much experience through your flight training in taxing, as long as you have a good instructor and, and you know, you're learning and, and doing things correctly, you shouldn't have any problems on that. Lee, here's a question um, for you. I always, I always kind of wondered about that. Is there like, if you're at a, at a, like a larger airport, is there a speed limit on the taxi speed? No. Or is that just kind of just be smart type of thing? Well, you want to be smart. I mean, I mean, if you're, what type of airplane are you in? Well, you know, if you're in means, yours, yeah. you know, I've taxed those CRJs at speeds the airplane would be lifting off the ground. Yeah, yeah, probably. Seriously, yeah. yeah. I've had I've had forty knots indicated on the airspeed indicator. Jeez. Oh yeah. It, this, you know, you don't worry about like making anybody mad. I guess if there's nobody around, it doesn't really matter. But no, I mean, you got to think some of these airports you're in and out of. Now I wouldn't do it at just any airport, you know. Yeah. But it, you know, some of the airport, you know, the particular airport I'm I'm thinking of, you know, you're everybody's happier. The fat, if you got nobody in front of you, go by, you know, in, in where I, I wasn't like in a congested ramp area doing this, right, right. you know, well, I'm, on a, I'm on a parallel taxiway to the active runway. I used to work uh, line service at an airport. And I remember some people getting mad when certain people would, uh, taxi up to the ramp too fast, you know, but well, and I mean, it's a logical, I mean, it's a logical thing to be upset if you have, you know, people just walking around or other aircraft operating, you know, in, at an uncontrolled field, I'm assuming you're talking about. So that in that context, I guess I can see it. But yeah, there's, there's no limit. You know, the only real thing that I can think of is like design limitations for like turns. Yeah. You know, like if you like, if you look at a high speed, uh, turn off a runway at a high speed taxiway off uh, at, at a bigger airport, you know, those are designed to be taken at 60 knots. Yeah. You know, so really, yeah. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So, um, just don't do that on an icy, uh, icy taxiway. Um, don't do that little... in the 150 probably because you'll be in that the air. Oh, yeah, you in the air. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Don't, yeah. Don't do that. All right. Pre-flight procedure still. Task E, taxing and sailing. This is applicable to seaplanes. Um, so taxing, if it's amphibious and you got wheels up your float, bottom of your float, you can taxi on the land, taxing around the water, uh, obviously. And then uh, sailing is, there's different procedures that, again, could be an entire episode of itself that you can do to basically sail the airplane and, and use the wind Instead of trying to fight wind on a on a surface to use the plane to make the wind do some stuff you wouldn't otherwise be able to do, uh, but we will leave that for another episode. But you you would learn that in in your seaplane training. So uh, I was very prepared for my my checkout after that at uh, Jack Brown's. Uh, they went into drop. that pretty. Yeah, well, it's I mean it's like the number one in the world Man, the wow. place to to do the seaplanes. Gold star, gold star. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, pre-flight procedures task F before takeoff check. This is we mentioned earlier. Uh, checklists. There's a before takeoff checklist. Uh, this is probably something your designated examiner is going to quiz you on. Uh, and then that we brought into airport and seaplane base operations, which is our next item on the actual reg. Item item Roman numeral three. 
uh, we are on. And then task A in this is communications, light signals, runway lighting systems. It's all airport stuff. Uh, it's all in the, the books you're studying. You, you're learning this in your lessons. Uh, they can they can and usually will quiz you on this stuff. Uh, talking on the radio. Light signals is more emergency. A lot of times, if you lose comms, there's ways to communicate with the tower via light signals and rocking your wings. And then depending on the size of airport for the runway lighting systems, there's a ton of different uh, runway lighting systems depending on you know what's going on and what different lights mean. And uh, you'll learn all that while you're going through your training. Airport and seaplane-based operations task B is traffic patterns. Just basically when you're coming into and out of an airport and you're in the area landing and taking off or, or just going around in the, what they call the pattern, it's usually this, it's a rectangle. You're basically flying around. Each leg has a different name. Uh, you're looking out for traffic. That, that stuff you're all you're all quizzed on on your on your exam. Traffic patterns for the airport, or they will watch you do it on the actual yeah. check ride in the aircraft. Yeah, takeoffs, landings, and go arounds. Roman numeral four in the uh, sixty-one point one zero seven uh, in the. ACS, uh, task A is normal takeoff and climb. Pretty self-explanatory. You'll do uh, a billion of those. Yes. In your training, usually only a couple on your check ride. They want to focus on the other harder ones. Uh, task B, takeoff landings and go-arounds, is normal approach and landing. Uh, that's another one, obviously. Normal takeoffs usually end up if back at the same airport, normal approach and landings. So, I mean, that brings up a question for me, Rob. What, what do you think? So if you're teaching, so you, you've, you've started, you've taken a student, they've came in, they had no prior flight experience. None. Okay. They come, they come to you. They've always wanted to learn how to fly. They're looking at buying an airplane. So you know that they're, they're committed and they're going to probably have a, you know, um, a, a nice long flying career. And you okay. have that in mind, you know, throughout their training that you're trying to make them as well-rounded as possible because they're going to do a lot of flying and, and all those things. So, and you're trying to, you know, do your best. The majority, what would you say of the two different types of, of normal approach and landings? Do you think you're going to primarily teach them more power off or uh, power and like stabilized type approaches? What do you think? I got. I, mean, I, I got. I have conflicting we, we have, opinions on it. It's a bias of how how you've learned. We always taught basically get set up so that as early as possible you would be fine if you lost your engine. Yeah, both yeah. of ours would um, power off if you you want to be able to make the runway if you lose the power. So if you yeah, yeah if you really boil it down, um, we were keeping altitude as long as we could on on the legs and then putting in flaps and then the, the last section not to go into a lesson on base final downwind legs and all that. It's basically, if you're, if you're flying multi-engine, that's not as important, but I feel like if you're single engine, you want to be able to make the runway as soon as possible. If you're, yeah. And then I know Don would, when, when he was in the airplane with his teaching, he, once we were decent at flying and, you know, he's checking us out or we're doing other stuff and then required, obviously, coming back and landing. He he would just pull the power back and say, you know, go make the runway. Yeah. Yeah. The way we were taught was usually wasn't a big deal at all. Right. Right. 
And I mean, I, I, I tend to agree for the, for the most part. I mean, you need to kind of have that worst case scenario because this is the one, uh, maybe not one, but it's, 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 it's one of the types of training where the simulated emergency can become an actual emergency. That engine can fail on any one yeah. of those legs in the pattern. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, yeah, you're, you're, you're training for it, but it could be real. Any one of those, any one of those, uh, times you're running the pattern. But like one thing, like I always, you know, I, I, I do tend to agree with you, but at some point you got to switch it up and start teaching them stabilized approach, even in a single engine, even if they're just a VFR only. Well, I think you should know both, but I think if you're typically, if you're flying a single engine plane, you should probably, in my opinion, anyway, keep yourself close enough that you can make it if you have a power failure. Well, so here's while you're in the pattern. Yeah, but if you're going to a brand new airport and it's a short field, you're going to be completely unstabilized. Well, you're going to come across those trees. Well, okay, but if you, yeah, if you're if you're at a new airport that you're it's short field and you're unfamiliar with it, then yeah, go ahead and do the. uh, But do you train like you fly or fly like you train? Well, I mean, Scott, I I learned at a short grass strip. Yeah, yeah, in an an airplane that lands there and takes off there relatively easily. Not everybody has that. You got to do it. Well, I'm I'm saying if you're if you're in a single engine plane, you should probably a Malibu. A Malibu is a single engine plane. How's that going to do at your airport? Well, use well, it's not very good. But it is. Yeah, (laughs) but uh, that's my point. Or Cirrus. It's a. It's a. It's an. It's a matter of odds at this point, you know. If you're at an airport, if you're at if you're at an airport that you're familiar with and that's long enough, you should be able to make the runway without power. If you're at an airport that you're unfamiliar with and it's short, you want a stabilized approach, then do it that way. But as often as you can, I would I would keep the airport close enough to make the runway. Yeah, if I'm in the airport it's, environment, I that's I what I would be do. able to. Yeah. To chop and drop it if I had to. Right. That's just the way I was taught. Well, 100%, but you're also not taking an airplane. You have a, you, if you reference your AFM or POH in those airplanes, it's going to land there. No problem. You can cut the power. Hold on. Listen though. Hold on. Hold on. You can, you can cut the power midfield or wherever you choose to do it on this given day. Go full flaps or, put them in let's put i mean let's let's cut the mixture you're not getting that power back and that's fine because the example i'm about to tell you it won't matter you judge everything you got the home field advantage you know the airplane you know the airport you just did 10 takeoffs and landings you know right right prior to this one you come across the trees 200 feet higher than you needed to 500 i don't know two yeah probably 200 let's say you can touch down midway and you got plenty to roll out. A Cirrus yeah. does that. A Saratoga does that. That's not the same outcome. And they're not no. vastly different aircraft. Or, I mean, maybe they are, but I, I mean, I don't think they are. Both single-engine airplane, not crazy heavy, not crazy high performance. Well, if I was if I was going into a 1,500-foot runway, I would probably do a stabilized approach with the power on. But how often am I doing that? Well, not very you, often. Middle, thing, middle Bass Island, right? Well, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you, yeah, you have that. You have or, that. But then, it, so it's kind of like as an instructor, I have to 
you're, you're setting the, the tone and the precedent for how this person is going to operate in their flying career. I'm playing devil's oh, advocate. I, totally. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't always do power off even coming into here is 2,700 feet. I don't, I don't do uh power off approaches every time. Sometimes a little, I'm a little low and I add power. So right. And yeah. If there's, if there's wind and stuff, I yeah. usually keep a little power on. I remember, but well, like cross when you mean, yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, and so you tend to do more of a, a clean, a, a clean, you have less flaps in, if any, you know, more power and a little bit flatter in approach. And that's all textbook stuff. You know, short yeah. field, short field, soft field, all that stuff is based on doing a stabilized approach. I'm, I'm totally with you. I'm playing devil's advocate, but yeah. you really need to teach the students both and when and where. You know, yeah, it's they're conflicting concepts. But if you teach them to do a power off, a beam the numbers or whatever, and then wrap it around like it's a, uh, you know, simulated emergency, yeah, they're going to have really good judgment. But when their landmarks are gone, or they're following somebody else in the traffic pattern, or they're going to a controlled field, and that throws everything off, they can't correct operate. Me, they did. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't. It, it's far. I mean. I haven't flown that many planes, but as far as the 150 is concerned, I don't feel like there's that much difference in handling the airplane versus a power off approach and a stabilized approach. I don't, I don't think they're that different. That that particular they're, aircraft is yeah, it's not, not that, much difference. No, no, I, I don't think you need to. You don't need to really train a lot for both because they're both pretty similar. I'm, I'm going to get the runway. I'm going to, I'm going to get the plane on the runway either way, and it's basically the same techniques that I'm going to use. Like, I have time in like a, a Piper arrow, for example, and uh, that, that I could see a lot of these points with the, like the arrow, that thing does not, there's no glide. You, 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 you know, you gotta, you gotta have power on when you land. Yeah. Uh, unless it's an emergency right. or you're like simulating an engine failure. And so you have totally different drag profiles for these different aircraft that we're talking about. And so different power settings required and, and that that's, that's all part of the thing. You know, you have to fly what you're flying when you're flying it. But I also think that look at the big picture, you know, if I'm going to bounce around between different airplanes and different airports, which is realistic, at least the different airport airports part, if you're going to bounce around these and you don't have the same visual cues and you're doing it at night, what are you going to do at night? You're not doing a power off landing at night. If you are, you're crazy, in my opinion. Yeah. You're not doing that at night. You're doing a stabilized approach. This is the real deal. Yeah. And you you have no other choice. Yeah. But if that, I mean, if that's the case, that there's, I mean, a a huge percentage. What if you're coming in at night and you're a little high? You you power off then. Right? You should, well... You shouldn't come in high. Is the whole point of the state? Well, approach. okay, but let's you have say a long let's say enough final to yeah, but let's isolate say all those things by a thousand a feet. Sh- shorter field at night, and it's that's why you need to be ultra stabilized. That's my point. You're a little high. Okay. Well, you should. Oh. Well, okay. So, how long is your final? I mean, I know this is going beyond what we're trying to do here, but I mean, I've done I've done both into to twenty five hundred foot runway before at night. You know, sometimes I've been a little high before, and I chopped the power, and I come in power off at night you know yeah when the 150 got 40 degrees of flaps to throw into well yeah yeah i mean i would it's not what i'm going for but if i see the runway and uh, okay okay i'm a little high then i'll chop the power if you can if you did it depends on when you determine that you're high and of course that's something i always taught everybody is if you notice these little subtle variations 
uh, sooner, you have the time to, to back on your side where you can make a smaller adjustment earlier on to get your desired outcome by the time, you know, the landing, you know, is imminent or whatever. If you wait and you don't notice these little subtle cues, you're gonna have to make a bigger adjustment to get you back on track. So you want to have some of these milestone events in the pattern to help, you know, fine tune and, and narrow, you know, kind of the scope as you get closer to the runway. That's that's the thing with the stabilized approach concept is you buy a thousand feet, you're not turning final at three hundred feet. You're turning final at thirteen, fifteen hundred feet above ground level, so that you're and of course that kind of throws out what everybody's doing in the pattern. But remember, we're trying to take this airplane, you know, a, a higher let's say a higher performance airplane or whatever, into an airport that if you reference your POH can barely go, let's say. I'm not trying to say it's unsafe. I'm just saying you got to be on it. And if yeah. that's the case, you're going to have a longer final. You're going to turn final higher. And, you know, you're looking at your, when I'm a 1,000 feet AGL, where am I? Am I on Am I on glide path? Yes or no? How does this look? At 500 feet, am I on glide path? Yes or no? How does this look? How's my airspeed? All that stuff. And as you get closer and closer, you're going to have to keep, you know, keep on it and change as little as you can to stay kind of in that slot. You have every essence of the word. You have the home field advantage, dude, at, you know, at your place. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. you know the airplane, you know the airport, you know everything. Not everybody has that, you know. Yeah, it's it's different type of flying, for sure. Takeoff landings go wrong. Scott? No. Me? No, I'm here. Oh, yeah. okay. All okay right. uh, task C, soft field takeoff and climb. Uh, this is during a does DE check ride situation. This is usually simulated. Uh, but basically, soft field is like grass when it's not dry summer. It's you know spring or fall, and there's been some rain. You get soft field situations. There's different techniques that you you will learn. Uh, most flight schools, it you're simulating this. Uh, but if you have depending on where you're instructing, you sometimes learn this for real. Uh, Takeoffs, landings, and go-arounds, part D, soft field approach and landing. Same thing when you're coming in, and it's a grass strip. Uh, there's there's different procedures you do from if it's a if it's a hard paved runway versus something that's soft and the, the wheels are going to stick to a little bit more. Uh, takeoffs, landings, and go-arounds, part E, is short field takeoff and maximum performance climb. Uh, this is similar. A lot of flight schools, you're going to simulate this. Uh, with the big runway, but you're basically going to try to get it off of the runway as fast as possible. Your flight instructor is going to go over this dozens of times with you during your training. Uh, task F is Lee, short for, uh, fi- for short field. Do you do you recommend uh, F- on taxi you just roll right into the takeoff, or do you hold the brakes full throttle on, on a, sh- on a short field? Yeah, on a short field, I mean, you really should hold the brakes, do a full power, check your engine. Well, so here's the thing: back up. Okay, but yeah. I would do that before. See me, I would check that before, and then as I go to take off, I just roll right into the takeoff and keep. Well, going. there's two schools of thought. I've you know I've done it you know most of the time on the roll, like you said, because if you roll it wide and then you roll it wide the other side, you've gained you know right. twenty I've- feet of extra runway. I've tried you know, it both ways, and I think that, that rolling into it is by far better. If well, you logi- go ahead. logically, if you're, you know, if you're going to that spot and then stopping, you're starting from that same spot at zero. At zero. If you're, right. if you get everything done before and you roll up and to you're that, rolling and into just, it, you have a couple you, mile it, an hour. 
you're, you're at that same spot you would have started at from zero, you already got some speed and momentum going. So yes, in this case where you're talking short field with a, you know, part 91 type operation in a normal category airplane. Uh, yeah, I mean, you're, you're right there. I mean, it's probably going to be, you can probably shave some off by doing the roll in my, I, that's my opinion. And there's a lot of other techniques that are just way beyond this that would probably help all that out. But you have to think if you're taking off from a short field in Denver in the summer, it's 90 degrees out, 90% humidity, and you're 5,200 feet, you're going to want to be, there's a lot more you have to do there because you're going to want to run up, you know, maybe to max power and then lean the engine at max power. So where are you going to do that at? Yeah, I've never done that. So I would do that on the, right before you enter the runway. And then once I went to go on the runway, I would just roll right into it. So you're not, but the, the, and, and I'm pretty much with, I'm, I'm with you, Scott. You know, the only thing is like, there is the potential that something has changed from the time that you've done that to the time that you're applying that power for takeoff. Because again, we're trying to paint the worst case scenario that you have an obstacle. If that engine even hiccups at this density altitude and this weight and all that stuff, you're going to be hitting trees. You know, we're talking about worst case scenario. That's where you want to do that static. And again, it comes back to does the POH say you can do it from static? They're not counting on you rolling. You know what I mean? So if it yeah. says you can do it from static and, you know, you're within the weight and balance and everything is accurate, it should be able to do it, right? Right. So that that's the thing, uh, you know, so maybe rolling in that case. If it says you can do it static, then you can do your full power run up, lean to best power, check your engine gauges are green, and you got oil pressure, oil temperature, all that good stuff, release the brakes and go with it. If you want to do a little bit of S-turns, you know, during those first few, you know, first few hundred feet before you have a lot of airspeed and, and really help, you know, maximize what runway you have, go ahead and do it, I guess, you know, to kind of simulate you doing the rolling. I agree with you. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, I've done that for years, uh, but I also, I admittedly have been in pretty demanding performance scenarios, but maybe not like some guys in Alaska or, you know, way, you know, way high elevation airports have had to. I mean, does that make sense? You guys agree with that? What do you think? Yeah, it's interesting. Always interesting debate. Uh, still in takeoffs, landings, and go rounds. Task F: Short field approach and landing. Um, I think we covered that with the conversation we just had. Uh, task G: Confined area takeoff and maximum performance climb. Mm. Uh, confined area. Uh, this would be. Would they be talking about like trees or if you're taking on mountainous trains? Yeah, oh, that's the way I'd be looking at it. Yeah, it says because you're looking at different climb out speeds, uh, wind shear and stuff. It's new from when we took the, the test. but And that all plays into it. I mean, in arguably, you know, we got coming up here, you know, performance maneuvers. And I would argue the soft field takeoff with an obstacle and the go around are definitely performance maneuvers. Yeah. There are so many things that come into play, just like the, you know, whether you're doing the rolling or the static takeoff, you know, so many other factors come into play that you, well, are you doing this or are you doing this? You know, you pick one and then you got to move on to the next potential variable. Okay. So are you going to do this? You're going to do this. And eventually you come to, you know, the end where one's better than the other. 
but you got to, you know, you kind of got to track down the breadcrumbs and see what you're doing at each, you know, at each, what are you doing with flaps? Wait, are you rolling? Whatever. You like you know. flaps on takeoff or no? Well, I mean, hey, you know, transport category stuff, you're not, the, the, the it's not telling you, hey, retract these at this out. I mean, not the same altitudes that we're doing, you know. We, you know, you and I just, you know, did your flight review and we had a, a pretty good talk about flaps and in some, you know, the insurance won't let you talk about it anymore, but if you start with no flaps or a, a, a lower setting of flaps and then put in more, it's going to pop off the ground better. I mean, that's all every seaplane pilot knows that, you know, every Scott se- and I, Scott and I may or may not have been taught, uh, the Cessna 150 full flap takeoff, uh, in the spring when the runway is completely, yeah, when the runway is completely underwater <laughs> and you can hardly get it out because there's yeah, no other way to move. do it. Unless full 40. flaps, full power, <laughs> it floats right off the ground. And never let the airplane roll to a stop. No. The only thing I would do there is I certainly would not start with 40 degrees. I, I, I probably would never get to 40, I don't think, but I don't know. I, I didn't do what you guys did. You I just know those better than me. It helps it pop up in ground effect, it seems like, when it runways covered in puddles and soggy and I just right. want to start with that drag though. Stuck in the mud. I just wouldn't want to start well, with that drag. There, there was there was times when like you have like maybe a uh thousand foot strip of dry grass that's like yeah. maybe maybe twenty feet wide because the runway's you know <laughs> it's not it's not very level and it's underwater. You know, half of it is underwater so you have a very small strip to take off on, so yeah, yeah. We can't recommend it publicly, uh, but it's a procedure that it works. Uh, we've dabbled with. Well, okay, um, takeoff landings task H: confined area approach and landing. Uh, that's pretty much similar to the takeoff, only your landing. Uh, task I is glassy water takeoff and climb, uh, which that is pretty smooth on a seaplane. Glassy water takeoffs are joy. Uh, Lee, you're also seaplane rated as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, task J, glassy water approach and landing. This is something I did not realize. I don't think a lot of people realize this. Uh, that is one of the most difficult things to do in a seaplane is the glassy water approach and landing. Mm-hmm. Um, the water, what, what grabs the floats? No, you, you don't know when to flare. You don't know when to start okay. rounding out and land because your depth perception on glass water is, is awful. Huh. Um, but yeah, so that's part of the technique you learned. Is that, would you concur, Lee? Or? Yeah, absolutely. That's it. That's, that's I thought the maybe it was because there's no flying you'll do. Yeah, it's basically not to get into the weeds here, but you have to set up the airplane and basically trust yourself that you set it up correctly and you, you're going to make it and touch down and like, don't move the plane out of that stabilized approach you have. Oh, stabilized you, approach. Now it's a good idea. Okay. Good, when you good, good, good. Glassy water seaplane. I, I totally agree. That's the only way you can do it. Uh, and then you just are basically, I was trained at Jack Brown's. You don't even look down at the water. You look up no. at the horizon where your, da- where your dash is on the horizon with like just enough throttle to have you descend at a nice smooth rate. And then you just are waiting, waiting, waiting and waiting to feel that water come up to the float. Yep. And then use a lot of, uh, a lot of water. Yeah. So anyway, we could probably do a, uh, 
and a whole other episode on that. Yep. Task K, rough water takeoff and climb. Uh, there's just there's different techniques you'll learn uh, in a seaplane if you're if you're training in a seaplane or when the water is rough. And then the same task L is rough water approach and landing. Super one sentence summary is you keep the front of the floats up as much as you can. Yeah, protect the bows of the floats. Yep. And task M is forward slip to a landing. This is a technique um, that a lot of times you'll use if, for example, your your flaps you know aren't functioning and you need to, to lose some altitude. Uh, you'll, or you don't have flaps. Or you don't have flaps, um, as some Hello. airplanes I've flown don't have flaps. And, uh, yep, so that's something you, you train for. It shouldn't be a big deal. Uh, task N is go around rejected landing. This wow. is if everything's not lined up perfect. Uh, even this is way beyond just pilot. I mean, this is your entire flying career. Uh, if something doesn't feel right when you're coming in, uh, you power up and you go around and reset up for it. Uh, so then typically you're, you're going to be quizzed on that. And, and probably, no one would ever, ever begrudge you for doing a go around when something doesn't feel right ever. No, no. It's, I mean, even if it's some, even if you could have made the landing, if you're in, something doesn't feel right, even if the dozen examiner is testing you, it's like, you know, they're not going to, they can't, they can't fail yeah. you for doing a go around. Yeah. Even if it's like, they have no clue why you did that go around because it looked, everything looked perfect to them and you could have made it. If you just go around, it's like, that's yeah, they're not going to exactly, they're not going to regret you for it. They're not going to dock points. Uh, so there's, if there's ever any doubt, you not just in the, the, uh, the check ride flight, but in always in real life, whenever you're flying, never yeah, I mean, worry about going around. Yeah. The only thing like if you're on your, any check ride, you know, and you do three, in a row and they're you're very unstable it's not going to be they're not going to hold anything against you and i i don't think they can hold you anything against you for doing the go around you're exercising good aeronautical decision making but they will cite a reason as to why you were unstabilized and that's basically going to put a spotlight on some other deficiency that's the problem the actual go around maneuver is not going to be the problem it's the fact that you had to do and rightfully chose to do the go around maneuver. If that makes yeah, sense, does that make sense? You can all, yep, you can almost make up points by doing the go around after you mess something else up. So yeah, like, but if you do okay. too many times, they're gonna. I'm saying they're gonna yeah, see exactly. That, hey, there's a problem somewhere else. No airspeed yep. control, no altitude control, or no pitch control, whatever. Yep. <clears throat> all right, we are on. Uh, uh, Roman numeral five, performance and ground reference maneuvers. Uh, task A is steep turns. Uh, pretty self-explanatory, but there's you, it's, you'll learn that fairly early on and, and continue to practice it in your training to become a private pilot. Uh, so they'll most likely be tested on that in the check ride. Task B is ground reference maneuvers, which, again, this is real early on in your training. You'll start to do like a rectangular course, uh, S turns, turns around a point. Uh, basically controlling the airplane going in different patterns, you know, out over in Ohio is out over cornfields. Um, I'm down here in Florida. Now we do them out over the Everglades. You should be pretty well familiar with that by the time you take your check ride. Roman numeral six is navigation. Uh, task a is pilotage and dead reckoning. This is basically navigating, obviously not using the GPS, 
That's like cheating. most people do today. That's cheating. Uh, but this is basically navigating via landmarks, navigating via your calculations. You know, you, you got your weather reports. Uh, winds coming from this direction at this wind speed. I want to go this direction. You, you do the calculations in your pre-flight planning. Um, I need to head at this compass heading and I should track this over the ground. And you, in theory, if you're all your calculations and all the forecasting was right, you will, you can go decent distances with, uh, without, you know, having a GPS. Cause I know Scott and I did our initial cross countries for solo. Our instructor, Don had us, had us basically dead reckoning it off of wind calculations. Yep. yep. Um, so we've gone pretty big distances uh, with no GPS. Seems like and, an obsolete way of navigating these days, but yeah. Well, I mean, uh, it's good to know. But I, by the time we had our it, GPSs, though, it was like, oh man, this is like brain dead easy because we knew how right. to do it yeah. without a GPS. By the yeah, time I mean, it's, it's actually good to know it both GPS. ways. But chances are, flying these days, you're not going to be flying without a GPS. So no, but right. it's good to know. It's good to good info, and you can be tested on it in your your check ride. Well, if nothing else, they'll go over your calculations. They may not even have you demonstrate the use of, you know, dead reckoning and pilotage. But the thing is, when you have that skill level, when you have that nailed by the time you're done with your private pilot training, it is such a nice peace of mind that, you know, you're going to go fly a 50 mile flight and you're going to be damn close. Yeah, I always, I always the, told everybody. The GPS goes down. You, you know, you got, you got your headings. You know your altitudes, oh. and you're, you're good to go. Oh no, no! Oh, I got a story for you. I was picking up an airplane in um, uh, New Jersey, somewhere Trenton, New Jersey, somewhere I don't know what airport, but you know, somewhere in New Jersey, uh, coming back to Ohio, Northeast Ohio, and I took a GPS. There was a GPS in the plane. I took a GPS. Um, both of them were dead, died in the middle of flight. Why? That is a per, dude, I don't know, but you know what? The thing is, is I didn't spend that much time like figuring out and freaking out about it. No, just no, because you know, the sectional, I had a sectional on the plane, which if you know, you, you should have, have, I have to have, I happen to have that as a backup. I've done so much of it. It was just, it's almost enjoyable when you get comfortable with it because that map is never going to break. It's never going to run out of batteries. As long yep. as you got a light and you can see it, which of course this was during the day, so I didn't have that to worry about, but you know, you're good. You know, and that's that's one really nice thing. That's that, uh, that it's great peace of mind in my opinion to have that skill. And I I yep. enjoy it. I enjoy it a lot. Oh yeah. Uh, navigation task B is navigation systems and radar services. This is a whole slew of series of episodes we could do. Uh but yeah, basically once you've covered dead reckoning and started to come into the 19th 20th century here you have navigation systems and radar services to assist you in getting around uh navigation task c diversion uh which this was not i I do not remember this back when we did our private pilot check rides this is somewhat new lee you insinuated before we hit the record button you you knew a lot about this? Well, I mean, I, I don't know if I want to say I know a lot about of it, but it's definitely got a lot of scrutiny now because, you know, we've, we've always learned, maybe we didn't look at it so much as a diversion, but we always knew, leave yourself an out. That was always taught to us. 
And that, that's really all diversion is about is where are you going to go when that, when X happens, the weather closes in or you have the, the winds aloft are stronger than you thought, or you have some, you have smoke in the cockpit or whatever the case may be. You have to, where are you going to go? What are you going to do? You know, I've had several over the course of my flying career and that's really when you reflect on it after it is all done. Those are the moments that you feel good about yourself. You took decisive action. You knew where, where, where you were going. Um, and that's, you know, in retrospect, you get on the ground, you know, nothing was real major with me, but, um, you get on the ground, you kind of reflect on what, after every flight, you should do this is what could I have done better? You know, what should I have done differently? Uh, you know, you reflect on this, you're like, you know, that all in all, that went pretty smooth, you know? So Scott and I kind of basically, at least we, cause we had the same instructor, we were kind of, this is just your plan B, C, D. They're just they're calling it diversion now is what yeah, I'm gathering. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's just basically have alternate plans. If your first plan doesn't work out, what are you going to do? If that, what are you going to do? If that second plan you made doesn't work out, you know, and that's and it going on down the line. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you can have, you can look at it more broad spectrum than that. And I mean, I mean, I know you're just paraphrasing everything ABCD, but in the, I mean, that's it. Just look at the broad spectrum. No, at least, Hey, the weather's coming in. I knew that system was there. It moved faster than I thought, or my winds aloft were further than I th- or uh, heavier than I thought. So I, my ground speed was lower, so I didn't get there as soon. So the, the the weather met me before I got to my destination. This was my plan all along. If you're going by the A, B, C, D, or I know I can go over there, and I know there's 12 airports to pick from, or I can turn around and slightly backtrack, and there's a great airport with a great restaurant on the field. You know what I mean? That's you can, you know, name, name it or whatever, or just have that awareness. Uh, yep. You know, you have options and where they are. Is it a left turn or a right turn, you know, type thing. Sums it up. Navigation task D is lost procedures. Uh, what to do if you are lost. Uh, this is part of your, your training. Don't uh, get lost. I know in, in, yeah. Don't, hey, don't get lost circle, in the first place. Circle a water tower. They always that, have always, the name of the town you're in. I would. I was just going to say, if for for if you're in the northern Ohio area, uh, and you're going cross countries over cornfields with little tiny towns everywhere, that's what that's what Don and I always taught Scott. Go, yeah. <laughs> you'll almost always see a town. Go to that town, look at the water tower. It's nine times out of ten going to have the name of the city on it. Then you can match that up with your sectional chart. And know exactly where you are. Yeah. Uh, you taught us that in addition to you know dialing in VORs and and doing the, all, all the other stuff. But that was that was always a if last resort. Just do that. <laughs> yep. Yeah. When he sent us off on our solo. And then, um, yeah. Navigation, or no, we're done with navigation. Slow flight and stalls. Uh, task A, you can be brought up, is a maneuvering during slow flight. So this is, you do this kind of practice when you're in the local airport environment. Um, when you're making turns to come in for a landing and you're low and slow is not when you want to be learning slow flight. So you, you do it uh, up in the sky and then so that if you do do something wrong, you, you got altitude to recover. Is that fair assessment? I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. Slow flight and stalls. Task B is power off stalls. And this is a misconception. Just clear the air. We're not talking about stalling the engine. Um, I talked to people getting into f- flying, they're all 
heard about stalls and they think it's like turning the engine off, which not, that's not, we're talking about an aerodynamic stall. Yeah. And that's what the news will lead you to believe. Whenever they say that, and you know, you think about like the parallel to a car, oh, the airplane stalled. Well, the engine didn't quit. Yeah. yeah the engine didn't quit. Um, again, could be a whole episode on its own, but wings just don't always produce lift, produce Enough. lift, no matter what you do, unless it's some crazy fighter jet or something. Uh, basically if you, you've, you bring the nose up on most airplanes far enough into the sky, it's just not going to continue climbing up. It's going to stall and do some things that are undesirable. So the power off stall is for basically you're simulating that up in the air with plenty of altitude to recover. And that simulates when you're in your final approach coming into a landing. So you know what the plane feels like when it's about to stall, you know how to recover from it. If you feel that without it being a problem, um, and then task C is power on stalls, which that kind of simulates when, when you've taken out and you're, you're climbing out and you do have the nose up in the air and you do, you just lots of power on climbing out. If you bring that nose up too much, you're going to, you're going to stall so that you, you simulate that out over cornfields or, or Everglades, depending on where you're training and, or desert and unpopulated uh, areas. Yeah. Basically, uh, so that if you're climbing out and you start to feel the airplane, what the airplane feels like, you can just recover. Basically, lower the nose is the recovery on that one. Uh, but you want to know what that feels like so you don't have a problem low to the ground. And then task D is spin awareness. Uh, basically, this is a stall where you're spinning down towards the ground. You're not required to actually practice these in the private, um, but you need to be aware of it. So you're probably going to be quizzed on that by most designated examiners during your check ride process. Uh, basic instrument maneuvers. This is we got into a little bit last episode. Uh, you're going to throw a hood on, uh, so you cannot see out the windows of the of the aircraft to simulate if you were to get in the clouds. And task A is basically straight and level, keep the airplane at the same heading and altitude. Is task A. Task B is constant airspeed climbs. So you're keeping the airspeed the same and climbing, gaining altitude. Task C is constant airspeed descents. Same thing, just kind of descending um, with the hood on, just using the instruments of the plane, not looking outside at the horizon or anything. Uh, task D is turns to headings uh, to get you out of situations if you need to. Again, this is not to like an actual instrument rating level, but it's just kind of emergency procedures. Uh, if you accidentally get yourself into, into clouds or fog and then, uh, task E with the hood on still is recovery from unusual flight attitudes. Uh, that's basically if you do kind of get disoriented, uh, how to identify that on the gauges and get back to normal task F is radio communications navigation systems, uh, facilities and radar services. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Lee, you, this is basically talking to air traffic control and using those resources. Yeah. To, uh, yeah, be the best resource. Yeah. To, Cause you to remember, get yourself out of the situation. That that's it. That's all it's about is all of this is like a life raft type concepts. Keep it, keep it not straight and level so much, but keep it relatively level and kind of 
safe. I mean, that's it. It's not going to be smooth. It's not going to be pretty. You're not going to want want to watch your track on flight aware when you're done. But you're you're safe. You you get in contact with ATC or somebody that can help you, and you get yourself. Uh, they'll give you the best weather. You know, they'll talk to other aircraft in the area, see where the weather's good. Do you have to climb? Do you have to descend? Where is it going to be clear at? And again, this goes back to the diversion. You should have an out. You should know where that weather system is coming from. You should know where to turn to begin with. But yeah, get get a second set of eyes on you. Uh, and with then the, um, yeah, and then that's part of your pre-flight planning is knowing uh, the local frequencies and stuff for the air traffic controllers, even if you're you're not needing to talk to them for your particular flight. Yeah, that, uh, knowing yeah, that, knowing which ones are near you and what frequency to get the hold of them. So if you do get yourself in a situation, you can call them up and and have them walk you through some stuff. Yep. Speaking of those emergencies, we get into emergency operations. This is coming up on the end here. Uh, emergency descent. This is if you get to descend really fast. Task B is emergency approach and landing simulated. A lot of times, your instructor is going to just pull the throttle back and say, "Hey, your engine failed," even though it didn't fail, and you. You know, basically are trained if you're around the airport, how to get to the airport. If you're not around the airport, how to choose an emergency landing site. Good training will will have you doing that no problem. Uh, Task C is system and equipment malfunctions. This is troubleshooting, uh, basically the systems of the airplane, mechanical issues uh, in uh, in the event you run into problems in real life. Task D is emergency equipment and survival gear, which... We did not go over this one. We learned how to fly, did we, Lee? No, mo- yeah, most people don't. No, I think uh, I think we were told if we're going to fly to the islands, uh, put a put a life jacket in the back. Yeah, but that, that was about it. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's not that far out there during the summer anyway. It'd be cold in the winter. Oh, I knew your, your ELT has to be uh, up to date, but yeah, it's more of a I'd, maintenance function. Yeah, anyways. yeah, yeah. It's like Bahamas, you can, I know down here in Florida, if you're going to the Bahamas, you can rent, in addition to renting an airplane, you can actually rent life rafts to, to throw in the back. Uh, yeah, we just went down to uh, Nassau, and yeah, we had a we had an eight-person life raft on board. Yep. It's got all the rations and all the desalinization kit and they fire are, gun and They are not stuff. set up to where you'd want to spend much time in them. No, <laughs> no. no. Be awful. Okay, night operations is night preparation. Uh, determine applicants' exhibits satisfactory knowledge, risk management skills associated with night operations. This is mm-hmm. psychology or physiological aspects Physio. of night vision. Yep. Uh, the airplane, yeah, everything to the, the equipment, the lighting, uh, the orientation, the chart reading techniques, uh, all your night flight stuff. They don't do check rides during night, so it's going to be simulated and basically mainly questions asked about it. Right, right. And that, I mean, people think, you know, you, you drive in the day, you drive at night, you know how different it is, but man, until you're flying at night, you guys can back me up. I mean, it is so different. Yeah, it's a lot. It, I mean, yeah. Totally different. Could not be more different. Flying at night is not the same as just driving at night after no. driving in the day. Right. Totally That's different world. Your nerves and everything too are different because you're. It's like driving at night. You're not you're not nervous to drive at night, but if you haven't flown at night in a while and you go out and fly at night, it's it's entirely different. Oh yeah, again, that's part of what you know why we have those recency of experience and, and currency requirements. You know, if you're going to haul passengers, which is another another lesson, but or another lesson, another episode, but 
you know, the FAA has recognized how different it is and they want you to have those specific takeoffs and landings at night for a reason because it is that much different. Yep. Then we are at the end post flight. We have emergency operations. Um, we have night operations except as provided in 61.110 of this part. That's that, uh, I mentioned that last episode. That's if you're flying in Alaska, um, if you go to robertberger.com, 61.110 of this part. Uh, I have an article about that a little bit. We won't go into it here. Uh, Roman numeral 12 is post-flight procedures. The task A is after landing, parking, and securing. Pretty straightforward. I mean, you do need how to do it, but if you've been flight training for enough to get to this point, that shouldn't be a problem. Uh, that's just towards the end. Just don't screw up anything major if everything else has gone good at this point. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, one thing I, that I would add here is, you know, a lot of this, the, the flying that we're doing, we've migrated away from a lot of pre, not, I don't want to say migrate away from pre-flight, but the post-flight is just as important because you're, you're theoretically going to, you yourself are going to fly the airplane again. Yeah. Your post-flight will serve as your next pre-flight, but it allows you time to, you know, if you had a bird strike that you didn't know about or that tire, man, we landed a little, you know, side loaded a little bit and took a little more rubber off. Now we got core shown. You find yeah. it now on the post flight so that before the next flight, there's time to get things attended uh, to. Mm-hmm. So they, there's a lot of emphasis now on the, on the post flight walk around that versus the uh, not versus, but you know, um, in addition to the pre-flight walk around. Yeah. And then uh, task B, post-flight procedures, is a seaplane post-landing, which this is, I would say, a lot lot more in-depth than the uh, the land. land planes with wheels. Because, I mean, they say never stop flying the airplane when you even when you're on the ground and you're taxing up. You know, basically never stop flying the airplane. Think about where the wind's coming from. Have your control surfaces appropriate to, to wherever your wind's coming from. And always have that mindset with the seaplane. Once you're down, like you're floating around still. Like this is all kinds of stuff you're doing. Still, like you got to go dock it. You got to or anchor it or beach it. But I would say though, with I mean, you can back me up. You know, with the with the tailwheel stuff. I mean, I would not say. I mean, obviously, seaplane is a whole other world, but and and definitely the most demanding. And as far as fly it till till it's tied down, but tailwheel's not that. I mean. Not yeah, t- that far off. Tailwheels, you got to always be on until that thing's tied to the ground. <laughs> right, right. I mean, the seaplane, the seaplane the most for sure, but tailwheels, you know, I wouldn't say a close second, but it's definitely, definitely yeah. right up there. Yeah, it's, it's definitely takes, if you're doing your, if you're doing your private in a tailwheel and taking your private check right in a tailwheel though, you'll, you're probably above the, the threshold bar. <laughs> you should probably do fine. Right, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then that examiner knows opinion. that too. Probably, yeah. You have to find an examiner. Probably that's comfortable in tailwheel themselves. That's also true. Because yeah. a lot of a lot of dozen examiners, I would imagine, don't know how to fly tailwheels themselves and would not be comfortable doing an exam in a tailwheel. Yeah, and and if they are, it is on a perfect zero wind day. Yeah, if if at all. Yeah. Yep. So that yeah, we went way over. Um, wrap this up real quick. Show notes will be Robert Berger, spelled B E R G E R, 
dot com backslash f a r a i m zero zero two. Um, email us is the best way to get a hold of us. Uh, my email is f a r a i m at robertberger.com, b e r g e r, the German way, not the sandwich way. Uh, Lee can be reached at f a r a i m at leegriffing.com, l e e g r i f f i n g. And Scott can be reached at f a r a i m at scottboris.com, b o r e s. And uh, you have anything else to uh, to wrap that up? I'm good. Yeah, I think good? we're good. Yeah. No, I'm good. All right. We will see, see you, uh, see everybody next time. Thanks for listening. Yep, see you next time. See you.